The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If we have not met before, I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here. I also teach up here about once a month as well. So it's really good to see you all this morning. Hope you're doing great. Um, I want to apologize for the heat in here because uh, we're replacing the air conditioning units, as you all know, and um, this service feels a lot hotter than the last service. So, uh, and I don't think it's the heat, it's more the humidity, right? Um, but I may need to have a sweat towel at some point in this sermon, I think. It's already starting to happen, I think, up here. Um, so, uh, good to see you all this morning. I want to remind everyone, for our men especially, that if you would still like to go to the men's conference this coming weekend out at Camp Tejas, we'd love to have you join us. Online registration has already stopped, but you can just show up. You can do the typical guy thing and not plan and just show up, right, to the men's conference this weekend. Uh, we'd love to have you down there at Camp Tejas on Friday evening through Sunday. So, we are starting a a brand new series today. I'm really excited about this series. We'll be in 1 John, uh, 2 John, also 3 John throughout the series. Now, I want to tell you a story. When I was 17 years old, I had a faith crisis, and it was caused by a specific event at my home church on a Sunday morning. And on this Sunday, the preacher stood up and he said, I'm not going to preach a sermon today. And inside, I said, yes. But I want you to hear a powerful testimony from someone, and then he went and sat down. And a man came to the podium, and he began to speak, and he began sharing his story. And he began sharing his life story, how he had grown up in the church and in most of his life. And, uh, and then at the end of his talk, he said, this past Thursday, I finally surrendered my life to Christ for the first time. Now, you might ask why this caused a faith crisis in me, because this should be cause for celebration, but I left out one piece of information because we all knew this man really well because he was a deacon in our church and he had been teaching classes in our church for over 20 years. Now, I don't know what was happening in his mind and heart, but many in the crowd were asking the same question. If this man wasn't a true Christian, then how do I know I'm a true Christian? The equivalent would be last week when Rick Erickson stood on the stage to be presented to you as an elder. What if he shared this in his testimony last week? What if he said, I just became a Christian this past Thursday. But he's been teaching classes here at this church for over 20 years. That, that statement might cause you to question, wait, if he, if he wasn't a real Christian, then how do I know I'm a real Christian? So my faith crisis, for many people, their faith crisis centers on the question, how do I know Christianity is real? For me, it was how do I know my faith is real? So for three or four days, I wrestled without sleep, without eating, until I resolved this question for myself. I'll share more about this later on in the sermon. But first, John deals with this question. How do we know we are saved, that we belong to him? Maybe you've wrestled in a similar, in a similar way with that question. So I want to talk about who wrote this book uh, it, it bears John's name, so most scholars do agree that John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. His name's not mentioned in the book, however, but most agree that he wrote it based on the close parallels to the Gospel of John. If you turn over to the Gospel of John and read that, you'll see a lot of parallels and ideas between uh, these letters and the Gospel of John. We know that Jesus had 12 disciples, but there were three that were part of a close inner circle, and it was Peter, James, and John. And over in John's Gospel, 
uh, John refers to himself as the one, who Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. He was also the only disciple that was present at the crucifixion. If you recall that story, Jesus is on the cross and he says to John, he says, hey, take care of my mother in my absence. And he commissions John to do that. John is writing, we believe, from Ephesus, which is the, the modern day uh, west coast of Turkey, and where he ministered later in his life, and somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. And we believe that first John is written to Christians in general, but second and third John had a more specific audience and specific people as audience of those letters. So why did John write this letter? Well, by the end of the first century, some heresies or false teaching began to arise in the early church, some of the churches there in that part of the world. And one of those was Gnosticism. Now, there's various different kinds of Gnosticism. I'm not going to unpack all those today. We may later on in the series. But this was an early form of Gnosticism, and it was the belief that the physical, material world was evil, including the body, but the spirit of a person was somehow good. And this resulted in many people believing that Jesus was fully God, but not fully man, because how could a, a perfect God take on imperfect human flesh if the physical and if the fleshly world is inherently evil, how could a perfect God do that? And so they didn't believe, they called into question the humanity of Jesus. In the early church, it was much more common to believe in the deity of Christ, but then question his humanity. Today, I think we get the opposite, where many call, they say, yeah, he's a good man, good teacher, good prophet, but many today call into question his deity. So this heresy led to led some to believe that what they did in their own body doesn't matter. And so John is writing to correct this heresy about Jesus, but also to correct the misunderstanding between body and spirit. And he's saying that what we do in our bodies does, in fact, matter. So in those early churches, the ones who believed this heresy were the ones that left the church, and they left a wake of destruction behind them, and by doing so, they showed they were not genuine believers, so John is writing to correct the heresy, but also writing to, to show what true faith should look like. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we see the purpose of this letter, and it's this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I know that many of you here, you have questioned your salvation, and John tells us in chapter 5 that assurance is possible for the believer. And it's really important because if, when you're, whenever you read 1 John, at first you're going to think, you know, his words don't sound all that comforting sometimes because he uses some intense language in this letter. But here in chapter 5 we see that, listen, for, for those who believe, it is possible to know and I think to be sure that you have eternal life. But the other side of that is that he doesn't want to give false assurance to the unbeliever, and we'll spend some time talking about that here in chapter 1. So turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, when you and I were young, our parents would open up a book, 
And the first words were often what? Once upon a time. Now, when you heard those words, you knew you were about to be transported to a world of make-believe. And deep down, you knew the story wasn't real, but you liked to pretend that it was. And you found yourself at times wishing and hoping that you could live in that world. But then as you began to age, something happened as you grew up and became more cynical and skeptical. Once upon a time became kid stuff. And instead of escaping to that world, you began to wrestle with this one, asking questions like, you know, what's true, what's false, what's real, what's fake, what can I truly believe in? And to be honest, Many of us learned about Christ at an early age at the same time that you're hearing things about Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. And so you start to question some things. And since you began hearing about that at an early age, most likely, we start to question, does this story belong in the category of once upon a time, fantasy instead of reality? How do I know I can truly believe this? Well, John has something to say about that. He's writing these first few words about Jesus and he says, we, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. He lists out three of the five senses. At the most concrete level, in this world for you and I, the way that we know things is through the five senses. And John lists three of the five here. He says, we, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. Jesus is not just some idea. He's not just some philosophy, there wasn't just some person who went out there into the woods and had some airy-fairy spiritual experience and then came back and tried to convince everyone of what they had seen. Because here he says, he says, we, we heard, we saw, we touched. And I find it comforting to know there were people like John who really knew Jesus firsthand, spent time with him, saw him do miracles, were eyewitnesses, they saw the resurrected Christ in bodily form. There might not be any other human who ever walked on the earth who knew Jesus like John. Now, if you had a close friend and you overheard some people talking about them, saying some things that weren't true, you might feel compelled to set the record straight. You might speak up and say, no, 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 that's not who they are. You don't know them like I do. You would appeal to your friendship with that person and I think that's what John is doing here. So Christianity was about many witnesses. It says we here. It says we saw, we heard, we touched, firsthand experience, and made manifest. That phrase means revealed openly. And that's what Jesus did to those disciples and many people in that part of the world. Now, even though we think that we have moved away from the fairy tale world of our childhood, the world still offers a lot to us that is fake, and many of us fall for it. There is nothing more true and real than the Trinity, and that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is nothing more real than Jesus coming in the flesh. He is the creator, the only eternal being, and everything else is created by him. And when you think about it, every all of us, any human ever created, anything in this world is, is really, it's temporary, it's not eternal. God is the only being that is eternal. The most true, the most real being in the universe 
is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yet, that's the idea that we question the most. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John says this this gospel message about Jesus, we proclaim it to you. Now, why does he say this? Well, the answer is surprising. He says, so that you may have fellowship with us. When you and I talk about the gospel and why we share it, we might focus only on the idea of surrender. I want them to come to know Jesus so they can have a relationship with Jesus. And that is good and right. But notice the emphasis that John has here. He says, so that you can have fellowship with us. That's the second part that we discussed in our last series. Surrender should always lead to community. And so when you share the gospel with someone who's not yet a believer, it is both and. is listen, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. But I also want to have a relationship with you and fellowship with you that's based on that relationship with Jesus. And John emphasizes that here, I think, in the opening section of this letter. When we share the gospel, the invitation should not stop with surrender, but also to become part of us. And surrender should always lead to community. You know, some believe that faith is personal and private. You'll hear people say things like, you know, yeah, my faith is, it's a personal thing. Or it's a private thing. It's never just personal and private. It is communal and public. And John says that he writes so that their joy may be complete. Does your life, does our life lack joy? Well, when did you last share the gospel with someone? Sometimes we think we have to feel a certain way before sharing it, but sharing it has a way of bringing our joy full circle. And I think John addresses that here. Now, in these next few verses, we're going to see three denials that are made by these false teachers. And the first is the denial that sin breaks fellowship with God. And I'm getting these three denials from an outline by John Stott, verse five, where it says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now to be really clear, we are not saying in this whole message today that that anyone can lose their salvation if they are a true believer. We'll talk more about this as we go. But John here is writing to believers, or at least those who profess to be believers. So when he says, we proclaim this message to you, the message he says is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, how is that? That's not really the gospel message. We would maybe say it that way today. But I think he's saying this to people that claim to be followers of Christ. And he's saying, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. So why does he say it that way? Well, based on the heresy, some believers saw this separation between the physical and the spiritual. The belief that, you know, what I do in my body doesn't really matter, can't really affect me spiritually, and they're falling for this lie. Now, to be clear, walking in darkness is different than simply struggling with sin. Every Christian struggles with sin, and they will until they die. But to walk in darkness 
means to intentionally, continuously, willfully walk and live in sin. It's to know God's commands and to say, I don't care. What I do in my body, with my body, doesn't really matter and can't really affect me spiritually. This is a person that claims to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, and someone who truly has fellowship with him, they're going to look at their sin and they're going to respond with confession and repentance and brokenness. That's light. Walking in darkness is to look at our sin and not see it as sin at all. Or indifference, look at it with indifference. Many years ago, I had this uh, conversation with one of my students, and we're sitting, I think, having lunch one day. And we were just talking about the things that we struggle when it comes to what we watch with our eyes. And he said to me, he said, yeah, when it comes to movies or shows, he's like, I'll watch pretty much anything. He said, I can watch things that have pornography in it, and I'm not really affected by it. And I, I began to push back and said, I'm not sure that anybody can say that. But behind what he was saying was the idea that I can, I can look at certain things, expose myself to certain things, and, and it doesn't really affect me spiritually. I, I'm not sinning or lusting when I see those things. They're just there. Sometimes people think they can, that they've like graduated or matured beyond the point where sin really affects them. And they almost see it as a positive thing. You know, I'm above that. It doesn't really impact me or affect me in the way that it might impact some people. I think this is a way that we are living out today this ancient heresy. That, you know, things, what I do out here in my body or with my eyes, like, it, it doesn't really affect me in my spirit. And I think that's walking in some darkness. That's believing what I do doesn't really affect me spiritually. And these early church heretics thought of the body as just a mere envelope that contained the human spirit and, and really couldn't be contaminated by the deeds of the body. Now, for true believers who struggle with assurance of salvation, you might look at verse 6 and start to get nervous. You might think, well, I, I struggle with some sin, so maybe I'm not a Christian but listen, struggling with sin is not the same thing as walking in darkness. Because walking in darkness means that you don't even, you don't even see your sin struggle. Remember, John, John's goal here is he doesn't want to give a, a false assurance to an unbeliever. That would be a tragic thing for us to do. It is much worse to think that you're a Christian and not be than to be a Christian and struggle with some assurance. And the best way, if you're not yet a Christ follower, the best way to have assurance, if you're not saved, is to cry out to him through prayer, asking him to reveal that you're walking in darkness and to shine some light on that darkness. And John says, if we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We often see truth as only something to believe, but John says, it is something to be practiced and, and lived out in reality in our lives. This is the heresy in which we struggle today. Look down at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Whether we walk in light or darkness, it not only affects our fellowship with God, but also with one another. Walking in the light means that we can have community without pretense. And I think many of us try to separate our relationship with God from relationship to others, but surrender to him should lead to this open, transparent community with other believers. And John talks about that here in verse 7. Now, whenever someone first becomes a believer, they begin to have this new sensitivity to sin. And they begin seeing their sin, and they might start to question, I'm seeing all this sin in my life. How can I possibly be a Christian with all this sin and brokenness in my life? But I would say to you that this is normal. This is a normal thing for a new believer. Because you were blind, but now you can see. And we can see sins that we never saw before. When I first became a Christian, I may have imagined uh, spiritual growth kind of like this, like just an, a never-ending incline of just getting better and better and better and better. And now, there are some areas of your life where you might think of it that way. But as I grew as a Christian, I began to see it not so much as an incline like this, but more like a sideways V. As you begin to grow in holiness and understanding, you also begin to see your sin more and more and more and more. The more you grow spiritually, the less holy you may feel. Now, it doesn't stop there. This is not a negative thing. It might be one of the best signs that you're a Christian, because you're, you're seeing for the first time things you never saw before and seeing your sin for what it really is. But this should not drive you to endless condemnation and shame because we let it drive us to the cross. When you look at, at verse 7, you have to understand, walking in light means that we recognize that he has cleansed us from sin. He has dealt with sin at the cross. So you see both things at the same time. You see, of course, the weight of your sin but the second half of that verse is so important. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see both and. And so John says all sin. That means our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. So that is the, the first denial. The second denial is denial that sin exists in our nature. Look at verse 8 where it says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the first claim we just talked about, acknowledge some sin, but deny the consequences that it affects our fellowship with God. But this second denial, I think, goes even further by claiming, you know, even if I did something wrong out here in my body, there's no real sin in my nature. This is a person who says, I know he messed up, but he's got a good heart. But listen, what, what happens out here in my members, it, it flows from the heart. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about that throughout that whole sermon, how the things that happen out here in my members, they, they come from the heart. We can't separate those things. Now today, if I were to survey the room asking, do you think you were born with a sinful nature? I think most in here would say yes. We've got a phrase for that. We say, I'm only what? I'm only human. Of course I mess up. Of course I sin. We would acknowledge that, yeah, I was born with a sinful nature, but where we struggle the most, we have no problem admitting sin in general, but where we struggle, we have a hard time admitting sin in specific situations. 
So think about the last argument that you had with someone when you just knew that you were right and they were in the wrong. And if I said to you, do you think you have a, you're born with a sinful nature? You would say, yeah, of course. Do you think you might be sinful in this particular situation? And you might say, absolutely not. But we struggle to see our sin in these specific situations. But here's the reality. If we're walking in the light, we're going to confess sin in general, but also specific sins. Now, you might ask, well, why do I need to confess sin if I'm already forgiven? Well, the same reason you need to go to your spouse or to your friend if you've sinned against them in some way, and confess that sin to them. And now listen, the relationship status doesn't change, but I think that, that fellowship and, and intimacy with that person can be affected if there's something between you in that way. The same is true, I think, in our walk with God. And listen, I'm not saying that we can lose salvation, but I am saying that how you relate to him, if you're not related to him in honesty, I think can be affected in your walk with God. Thirdly, it's denial that sin shows itself in our conduct. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this ties into the last denial that we just discussed, but I think it goes even further. Even if we admit that we have a sinful nature, we find ways to deny that we've sinned in our actions. And this makes God a liar and turns us, of course, into a liar. And for believers that struggle with assurance, I want you to notice the language that John uses here. He uses family language. He says, my little children. And over in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, my kids don't ever have to doubt that they're my children. Do we have conflict, arguments, tension? Yes, especially when they're wrong. But they never have to question or doubt their position with me. They know that I'm their father. I think it's really important that John uses and that Paul uses family relationship language here. And and that Christians can have this experiential confidence that they belong to him. That that status doesn't change. Of course there can be tension and conflict, but you're secure in who you are. And his spirit testifies to us that we are his children. Now, John says he writes these things so that you may not sin. Now, when you read that phrase, you might think, wait a second, now I'm insecure again. I feel insecure about my salvation again. But this can include walking in sin, but also, I think, sinning less as we grow in certain areas of our life. I love this quote by John Stott. He says, it is possible to be either too lenient or too severe towards sin, too great a lenience almost encourages sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for the sinner, but an exaggerated severity, on the other hand, either denies the possibility of a Christian sinning or refuses him forgiveness and restoration if he falls. There is so much here. 
Because one extreme is to, to view sin as just no big deal. What's the big deal? The other extreme is to give sin so much weight that we bury ourselves under just all this guilt and shame and condemnation. But walking in the light means that we, we see our sin, but we also see Jesus. And we see him as our advocate. And we see him as our propitiation. So as we talk about these different denials that we can fall prey to, after this introduction, John is going to give us three tests on how someone can know they belong to God. There's the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of belief. And the rest of this letter is about those three ideas. We're going to cover this the first one today. Test of obedience. Look at chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, to be clear, this does not mean perfection. How how many of you all think that right now you're living, you're walking in the way that Jesus walked? Raise your hand. We're not doing so great at that, are we? This is not talking about perfection. But this is a life that's, that's characterized by faith and love, obedience, and self-sacrifice. And then we're at least on that pathway of sanctification that Jesus is leading us down that road. Remember, this is not simply, you know, did we sin or did we not? Did we mess up? Did we not? But part of obedience is how we respond to sin. One of the things that I always tell my students when we're talking about a sin struggle of theirs or a way in which they've fallen into sin is I say, listen, it's not about just whether or not you sinned. It's how you respond to sin. You can't just see your life as like, I messed up. And that's it. It's like, no, no, how how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to respond to that with letting him be your propitiation? Are you going to respond to that by letting him grow and sanctify you in your life? It's about how you respond to sin. It's not just about whether or not you sinned and fell into some kind of temptation. And obedience here isn't the cause of our salvation, but obedience gives evidence that someone is saved. And again, part of obedience is, is your life characterized by repentance and confession? If there's no obedience, no desire towards those things, no desire to obey, well, then there's cause for concern. And I think verse 5 reminds us of the relationship between obedience and love. And this is really important because we should obey out of love for him. But as we obey, we start to understand how much he loves us and our love for him begins to grow more and more and more. So with assurance of salvation, there are unbelievers who have false assurance and there are true believers who struggle with some assurance there's a really helpful book by donald whitney called how can i be sure i'm a christian and there's a really helpful chapter in that book on how it's possible i think for true christians to lose their sense of assurance now to be really clear this is not about someone losing their salvation we don't believe that can happen for a true believer 
But I do think it's possible for a true Christian to lose their sense of assurance. And this is different. And he talks about six different ways in which this can happen. How do Christians experience eroding assurance? And the first way is refusal to deal with known sin. Our job, my job, is not to declare if someone's saved or not. That's not my job. But if someone's in front of me and they're a professing believer and they're living and walking in sin, all I can do is call them to repentance and pray for their confession and repentance. That's all I can do. I can't declare what their eternal status is. But if we're walking and, not, and we're refusing to deal with known sin, obvious sin in our lives, there's a way in which we might experience some eroding assurance in our relationship with him. He writes in the book, when we intentionally and impenitently, which means unrepentant, live like those who are not his, he won't give us a strong sense of assurance that we are his. There are times where we get, we get scared and want to focus just on the assurance question. And God is saying, no, no, you're getting distracted. Repent. Let's deal with the sin. Let's not talk so much about that. Let's deal with the sin and you need to repent. Secondly, there's spiritual laziness, to be really blunt. Do we spend time with him? If you came to me and said, I just don't feel close to my spouse or to my kids, I might say, well, are you spending time with them? And you say, no. Well, that, there might be a connection there. But we fail to see that in our relationship with God, that if, if we just don't ever spend time with them, we, we may start to feel some eroding assurance in our salvation. Then there's satanic attacks. Satan wants to convince lost people that they're saved and save people that they're lost. And he's going to chip away and cause doubts and questions. Then there's trial and harsh circumstances. Many of you have walked through really difficult things in your life and are currently walking through difficult things in your life. And there's times where you, you just think, I wonder if I can have assurance because it doesn't feel like his hands on my life right now. And this, began, this can begin to chip away and erode the assurance that you might expect to feel. There's personality and temperament. There are some people who are more inclined to depression and anxiety and worry. And if you go back in church history, you will see that some of the people that wrote some of the most amazing hymns or amazing writings were people, if you read their biography, where they struggled intensely with depression and anxiety and worry. But God used that to pen some of the greatest things that have ever been written in, in, in church history. William Cowper is one of those people. There's spiritual dryness. You're spending time with God, you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, but you just, you just feel dry and you can't explain why. And this is why I think God has given us the Psalms to read. Because when you read the Psalms, when you're spiritually dry especially, you see over and over in the Psalms where God wants us to preach to ourselves. The, the sermons that you hear should not be just ones that come from this stage. 
but they should be ones that you, you preach to yourself. You use scripture, and, and when the psalmist writes things like, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? That's a sermon someone's preaching to themselves. And we're supposed to use the scriptures to preach to ourselves, especially when we're spiritually dry. Several months ago, I was, uh, I think, in my office, and I got a phone call from my wife. And I said, hello? And she's not responding. And I'm, I hear some stuff in the background. I'm wondering, what, what is going on? I said, hello, hello, hello. And she never responds. And I'm on the phone with her, but she's not responding to what I'm saying. Then I realized she dialed me by accident. And I can tell, I can hear that she's driving, I think. And, uh, and then I hear her start talking, and she's talking loudly. And at first, I think it's to me. Then I realize, no, 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 she's praying. She's having this conversation with God. And I thought, I'm going to continue listening to this. <laughs> and so I'm eavesdropping now on her conversation with God. And, and this was... People call them quiet times. This was not a quiet time. I mean, she was quoting, she was like preaching to herself. She is quoting scripture. She is calling down Holy Spirit fire, right? And I'm just listening to this conversation and, and I'm reminded of and humbled by my wife's prayer life because she does this also at home sometimes whenever she's in a different part of the house. I hear her talking to herself and I'm like, oh, she's praying again. But she has a way of, of preaching to herself and quoting scripture to herself and preaching sermons to herself. And this is what we're supposed to do, I think, whenever we're walking through spiritual dry seasons of our life. It's how we should pray. So these are the ways that true Christians can experience eroding assurance. So how did God give me assurance with my own salvation? Well, I'll never forget those several days when I was struggling intensely and one night I'm in my room, laying on my bed, just writing some things down and, and looking at some scriptures and just really wrestling. And my dad came into the room and he sat down and he said, hey, you know, what's going on? And I began to share how the experience at church began to make me question and doubt my own salvation. And he shared some thoughts with me and then he also opened up the Bible and he pointed me to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And he just, he just read it and he said, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he just looked at me and said, do you believe that? Do you confess that? And I said, yes, I do. But I said, how do I know if I truly believe it in my heart versus just believing it somewhere up here? He said, he said I think that if someone believes something in their heart, it's going to affect the way that they live. And I've seen this affect the way that you live. Like, you're not perfect. No one's perfect. But I've seen it affect the way that you live. This is not a formula. Oh, okay, believe in the heart and then, then confess with the mouth. That's not what we're talking about. But I do believe that when you believe something in the heart, it's gonna come out of the mouth. It's gonna be confessed with the mouth. That means, that might look like initially a, a prayer of surrender, surrendering your life to him, but then continual confessions with the mouth as you begin sharing your faith with other people, with family and 
friends, people in your workplace. To believe something in the heart means it's gonna affect the way that you live. So if you're someone that really, you worry and you fret and you're anxious about your salvation, I'm not worried about you. Because you show that you desire it. You show that you want that. The person I'm concerned about is a person who says, yeah, I had a little experience back when I was a kid, made this proclamation, and that's pretty much it. And it hasn't impacted their life one bit. That person would give me cause for concern. So that you were, that you were this concerned about your salvation, I think, is a good sign. Listen, for me, I was starting to turn salvation into, or faith into a work. How do I know it's good enough or complete enough? And listen, it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. We thank you that we can know that we are your child. God, we thank you that we can know that salvation is secure. We know that we're gonna have questions and doubts. We're human, that's what we're gonna do. But God, we know, we, we praise you that we're able to understand your word and understand that you have, have saved us. I pray that if there's, if there's anyone in this room that is questioning or doubting that and they, they are a true believer, God, we pray that they would have that assurance, that you would give that to them, that they would know that they, that they are your child, that they belong to you. At the same time, for anyone that may not be a believer, God, we pray that if, they're, if they have some false assurance, we pray that they would begin wrestling with that, understanding that they need to come to a place of confession and repentance and restoration with you, Father. Would you reveal that to them this morning and that they would surrender their lives to you, Father? We pray this in your name. Amen.